Hi, thanks for tuning into Keeping Green. We are broadcasting in Calgary on Treaty 7 territory and Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. My name is Emily and I will be this month's host along with my friend Nikki. This month's episode will be about food. We'll be speaking with Megan, one of the founders of the newest community fridge in our city, and Paul, the founder of Grow Calgary. We'll be getting a closer insight into these amazing nonprofits, their goals, as well as touch on issues of food security and what we as a community and individuals can do in order to initiate change regarding these issues in our city. Without further ado, here is Nikki and her interview with Megan. Do you mind telling us a little bit about the YYC Community Fridge? Like, where did the idea come from? Where is it found and it's ours and what kind of food that you can find there? Sure. So we're actually called the Calgary Community Fridge. And we started in August, just a group of friends who had seen it pop up in other cities across the country. We had friends in Toronto who had started one similar to ours. We just thought, what a great way to connect with people, especially during COVID, but to also take care of our own communities. And so we're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So the fridge actually lives in a small shed enclosure that we're currently winterizing, uh, just to make sure that the appliances are working through the winter. Uh, it was really important for us to make sure that it is outside and that it is constantly accessible for people. So there's no judgment. Whenever works for you, um, you can come down and check out the fridge. So that goes the same for donations. If you live in the community, if you're making a point of stopping by, whatever time works for you in your schedule, the fridge is accessible for you to donate to. So largely we're looking for non-perishable items, so any sort of canned goods, uh, toiletries, hygiene products, uh, period products, as well as fresh fruits and vegetables that people can create healthy meals. We've got two freezers too, so we quite often have big donations of bread or any sort of frozen meals. This certainly isn't a new idea. Um, I believe that there's 42 in all of the five boroughs in New York. They've, once we started sort of like looking into fridges, we noticed that, you know, they're in Brazil, they're in Colombia. Mm-hmm. Lots of times they're in warmer climates, but there were so many people in the United States that were trying to do it as well. Uh, and like I said, this isn't certainly like a new idea and food scarcity has always been an issue, but because we just thought, what can we do in our own community? So myself and four friends got together and just sort of pooled our resources, pooled our talents, and thought, how can we make this work? And with the generosity of so many people in our direct friend group, as well as just putting it out to volunteers in the community, we've had carpenters, engineers, insulation companies, silk screeners, really just the whole gamut of people have come together. So we started a GoFundMe account in the beginning of August, and we thought if we could fundraise you know, a few thousand dollars that would keep us going. Uh, We were able to fundraise over $16,000 in just a couple of days, which is absolutely incredible. Uh, And then we were like, "Uh uh-oh, we've got to put this into motion. So we bought a fridge that we then donated to another uh, fridge in the city. Uh, They're just in the middle of starting up, but we also got one donated to us that uh, we are currently using. We had our freezer donated by a local company, Tokyo Street Market. Uh, It really has just been this sort of cornucopia of people coming together to make sure that this project works. We don't really want any ownership on this. We really Mm -hmm. want it to be owned by the community, and we're really conscious of, you know, not going ahead sort of saying, look at all the great work we're doing, because I Mm -hmm. think the fridge sort of speaks for itself. So um, volunteer is just fine. And I know you touched on this when you were responding, but how has the neighborhood city responded to the fridge in general? 
Undoubtedly, there were concerns at the beginning, uh, which is totally fair. AHS certainly put us through the ringer in terms of making sure that we are jumping through all of the correct hoops in terms of food handling and food safety. Uh, because we are not actually an organization and we're just a bunch of charitable citizens, uh, we don't have too many uh, sort of like legalities that are issues for us, but we certainly had to make sure that we had a landlord that approved the fridge to be on private property. So while it is outside, it is on a city block that is owned by a company, and so they were nice enough to say yes to us. Um, and then really, we made sure that the space looked beautiful and inviting, so we worked with other artists in the city. Riz, who goes by the handle of demonography, they came out and painted a beautiful, huge vegetable, smiling, uh, warm, encompassing space for us. So right off the bat, when people were walking by, it wasn't just an appliance sitting on the street, which in some climates would work. We knew it wouldn't work for us. So right off the bat, people were really interested. I think there's a little bit of trepidation, of course, in having you know, a lot of people coming through an area they're not normally used to coming through. But because we're right on Center Street at the top of the Center Street Bridge, it is a pretty open public access area. So we haven't really had any negative feedback from the community. Mm -hmm. It's mostly been a lot of people who are really grateful to either feel that they can give back to the community or to participate and come and take from the food. Based on the stigma that's associated with using, you know, this this kind of service, um, it may be a large hurdle that vulnerable groups may face when they're thinking about using this fridge. And how has the Calgary Community Fridge tried to engage with these vulnerable groups so that they feel empowered to use and share this service? I mean, I think if you run into anybody that's associated with the fridge in terms of volunteers or our organization, or not our official organization, but just our group of friends who are organizing it, um, you're going to be met with huge smiles and a really welcoming attitude. And apart from that, really, I mean, a lot of people want to do something under the cover of darkness. They don't necessarily mm -hmm. want to have to show their face or have a dialogue, and we're completely aware of that, which is why it was so important for this to be outdoors and accessible 24-7. So whenever you're comfortable, you're able to come. Of course, like any new situation for anybody, uh, it can feel really uncomfortable at first. You don't really know how you're going to feel until you get there. And like I said, we just try to be as welcoming as we possibly can. Um, and if you're just a quiet person who doesn't want to engage, that's totally fine, too. We're not really forcing anybody into anything. We're, no, there's no video cameras. There's no way for us to sort of like monitor who's there. And that's really important as well. We don't want people to feel like there's eyes on them. Um, there's so many incredible food resources in the city, but quite often you need identification or you need to meet a certain tax bracket or be under a certain tax bracket. Whereas the community fridge, maybe you're just one or two paychecks away from having food stability. Maybe you are living on the streets. There's so many different ways that mm -hmm. we hope to be able to service the community. But ultimately, our biggest thing is that we just run out of food really quickly because we are a free service and now that we've been around for a couple of months, more and more people are learning about us, so we have to work even harder to keep that fridge stocked. I just love how open and supportive the the community fridge is. It's such a great idea, and I, I'd love to see more of this in the future. And speaking of the future, does the Calgary Community Fridge have any specific future targets or goals that they want to achieve? For example, future collaborations or more pop-up fridges in other locations? Absolutely. I mean, the world's sort of our oyster. We're obviously limited by physical manpower. Um, we don't want anybody to sort of feel like they have any sort of like volunteer exhaustion fatigue, which certainly can happen. It's also just sometimes really daunting to feel like you can't do enough to service your community or 
you know, you're just not really making a dent because there is such a huge need. So we obviously don't want to tax anybody, but ideally we had to start, ideally we would like more projects, but we had to start this as a pilot project because there were so many hoops to jump through Mm -hmm. and we didn't really want to go full steam with just wild excitement and enthusiasm and then have to shut down a service. It's really important that when you've established this kind of service for people, it's not our all of a sudden taken away from the community mm-hmm. because that could be so jarring for so many people that are involved and it would obviously be a huge disappointment to everyone who's worked so hard for it. So this is our pilot project and now that we're sort of learning the hoops, what we really want to see is people in other communities stand up, raise their hand and say, I'd like to take this on with a group of friends or an organization in my own community. So as opposed to us starting a fridge for you, I think it's so much more successful if you want to start the fridge and then we can step in and say, hey, we'll help you source the appliance. Here's how we built our sheds. Here's how we started our GoFundMe. Here's how social media has been working for us. And if we can give you the tools for success, then you can take it to your community. Because if it's not embraced by your own community, we can't run all over the city and force you to feel passionate about it. Mm -hmm. But if a group of people do feel that passion, then it's nothing but success. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. And if people want to get involved and if they want to volunteer or donate, where can they find this information? So they can look us up at Calgary Community Fridge. We are on Instagram and there we have a link to our link tree and that's got volunteer hours, uh, how you can donate financially, how you can donate with actual physical food items. Um, it's got our location and soon we'll be, like I said, we'll have those packages They can of how they can start their own fridge. Um, they can also email us at calgarycommunityfridge at gmail.com. Perfect. Initiatives like the Community Fridge really put into perspective how much power we have as individuals to create a change in our community for the common good. In that note, I welcome Paul. Thank you, Paul, for being here with us today. Uh, We're excited to get to know a little bit more about Grow Calgary. So I know that you guys are the largest urban community farm in Canada, 100% off-grid, operating successfully through the hard work of volunteers. Can you tell us a little bit more about your nonprofit? Yeah, absolutely, Emily. We grow food and then we give it away. We're a compassionate farm versus, say, commercial farm activity, commercial agriculture, which is to grow food and to sell it. Uh, We grow food and give it away. So as a nonprofit, how do you guys attain your resources, such as seeds, for example, the soil, fertilizer, etc.? Everything is donated to us. We have uh, 100% volunteers. All the materials are donated based on a concept called GRUB, which is to glean, repurpose, upcycle, and then build. So we take somebody's garbage, becomes a treasure for us, and then we build the $5 greenhouse. These things are ubiquitous in our society. So if you've ever built um, if you ever built a fort, you didn't go to your parents and go, hey, I need 500 bucks for a fort. You just went and found different materials and built it. It all depends on what you want to accomplish. But we do the best we can with what we have. So we don't use any fertilizers. We use soil amendments. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those are things like manures, green manures, cover crops. So not only is that applied to materials... It also applies to human resources and the sweat equity that people put in. So if we have a lot of people out one day, we get a lot done. And if we don't have that many people out, we still try to do a lot and get as much done as we can and take care of the prioritized parts of a farm. So at the end of the day, uh, can that $5 greenhouse grow as much food 
as a $5,000 greenhouse. Mm-hmm. And it can't, absolutely. So that for us is the determining factor. So this is very well said. I believe Paul sets a great example for all of us to acknowledge what we have in our own backyard and to take advantage of what is provided for us. Uh, What he says next is probably one of my favorite quotes, and I think it is something we should take into consideration every day. Mother Nature is our boss. Mm -hmm. We can argue all we want with her, but she's going to do what she's going to do, and we have to adjust accordingly. So considering our prairie landscapes, our winters and overall seasons, what kind of foods are easiest to grow? And is there anything that you can grow all year round? I'm pretty positive about our climate. We have great soil. Uh, The prairie uh, has amazing soil. We are able to grow. And the things that grow really well are your staples, you know, your carrots, your potatoes, your peas. We had huge peas this year. Kale and chard went off like crazy. Um, Sunflowers, hemp. It was a good year. Almost everything we planted germinated. That's great news. I know that I I took on a little project by growing my own cherry tomatoes this year, and I miss them. I prefer them a lot more than store-bought. I feel like it gives you a little bit more of a rewarding feeling if you end up growing it yourself and harvesting it yourself. And there's a lot of emotion around food, too. The more we connect to something, uh, if if that helps to create a more wholesome, fulsome taste, then absolutely. But I personally, I adhere to that. It's something so rewarding to be able to grow and harvest your own food. And I know that there is a couple, um, more than a couple, community gardens around the city. Uh, How do you guys differ from community gardens? We're very different in the sense that not only the scale of what we're doing, uh, what we're doing with the produce, we're giving it away. Most of those people, 99.9% of community gardeners are growing it and keeping it for themselves, which is great. That's awesome. And it's, it's often for people who don't have their own space to grow, which is really cool. I guess we're, the commonality would be that we, we love growing food mm-hmm. and that we're trying to grow food. And what Community Gardens offer is a place to learn the skills of how to garden. And it off, also offers a really great opportunity for recruiting people to get out to start gardening and farming and learning about agriculture and food production mm-hmm. and cultivation and germination. So I'm very curious about the land. Uh, So considering public land is controlled, managed, and owned by Alberta Infrastructure, what's your approach to acquiring permission from the Alberta government to use these lands for agriculture? We don't really seek permission as much as we seek forgiveness. Um, But we did go jump through all the hoops to get the land uh, on the transportation utility quarter. So we didn't go on there until we had right of entry and a number of other forms were signed and so forth. But um, that's a whole other story. Um, there's a lot of land out there, and the government will not part with it. It's like a child with a thousand toys, and you want to play with a couple of toys, and they're like, no, I, I need all these toys. And, and I really encourage listeners to, you know, contact the government and say, I'm looking for an acre, uh, and I'd like to grow food, and I'd like to give it to poor people. Try that. Try that with the city of Calgary. It is almost impossible to get public land to grow food It's so incredibly difficult. Yet we're in the second largest country in the world. Mm -hmm. We have an abundance of land, and it is so difficult now in 2020 to get your hands on land. It's the number one barrier for young farmers that would like to grow food. And so it's a catch-22. It's a foobar. It's against the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, actually, which prohibits uh, arbitrary decision-making, precludes arbitrariness, and onerous process. But, but, but this is the thing is you've got to try. 
We've got to do that. Talk to Drishan, the Minister of Agriculture, who has over 4 million acres of grazing land in Alberta, just in central Alberta. Oh, man. So there's so much land out there, mm-hmm. but we can't access it. We continue to be saddled with these challenging environments with legislation and policy and bureaucrats that don't care and politicians that are spineless. If I am not mistaken, you guys lost a piece of land about two years ago. Can you explain the reasons as to why you guys were displaced? The government, when they first gave us the land, they gave us two parcels. One was a surplus and one was on the TUC and they said, that when we build the TUC, you're going to have to get off the TUC, but you can move all your operation over to the surplus land, which is adjacent side by side. Mm-hmm. And so we went with that. And they also said that that was the best possible location for the farm and that you would be there for forever. And then all of a sudden in 2018, Brian Mason and the NDP decided they were going to uh, finish the ring road for some reason. And also we received a letter from the NDP government days before Stampede in 2018 saying, you got to go. And so we tried to engage with them and come up with different options. Uh, I went down that road. I went all the way down that road. And I talked to everybody. And I finally got into the Department of Transportation and Ministry of Transportation and looked at the plans for how they were going to build that area. And I said, the only reason you're kicking this off is because of this little tiny road here that you don't even need to service a church. And so we're like, why don't you just put the road over here along the perimeter? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no, we've had these plans for a long time. And so um, engineers and politicians and bureaucrats, uh, they intransigent like they really latch on to what they're doing so yeah two years ago they told us to get off the land we fought it we said uh, we had a little campaign what's the fuss with the surplus Mm -hmm. Uh, we were working with some different and one individual our mapping campaign for a geography uh, publication Mm -hmm. and it was accepted um, which is really kind of cool to see how we we attacked the decision but defended ourselves by using maps and by using imagery to show people like where we were located, where the surplus was, mm-hmm. where the road's going to go, and tried to change that narrative a bit because the government would just have their mantra like, sorry, you got to go. You knew this. And it's like, no, we did not know this. We knew you were, we were going to have to get off the TUC, which we did mm-hmm. immediately, uh, but we wanted to stay on the surplus, which is what they had originally said we could do exactly and they told you it would be forever right? yeah yeah it was and also then they then they started talking to us about us transitioning to a new location and uh once we finally got our heads around that uh, we knew that they weren't going to budge and there wasn't going to be any common ground there was no engagement the ndp government ghosted us uh and we realized that we started negotiating with the bureaucrats on a new location so that uh, they made a number of commitments. Every single commitment that they made, they broke. And we, we, we had to completely abandon the relocation and uh, growing food. So we lost, I mean, we lost an entire year of growing food to give to the poor and the traumatized and the vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, and they didn't bat an eye. Uh, they have 15,000 acres just in Calgary alone on the transportation utility quarter. They never once have promoted urban agriculture or community farming or any kind of agriculture, even for even commercial activity on that space. They say to me, they look at me and they go, 
why don't you go and shop at Safeway like everybody else? What don't you understand about the transportation utility corridor? It's for transportation and for utilities. It's not for farming. So they would rather keep that land just completely unused. Uh, and mow it. And mow it. So we've spent almost a billion dollars maintaining all of that land. And we have... For nothing. Absolutely nothing to show for it. That shows no vision. And that's why we're in this problem is right now with, with the world uh, environmentally mm-hmm. and economically and everything is that there's no real vision out there. It's If it meets the profit model, then we go for it and pull the trigger. Mm-hmm. People don't think ahead. And those people are almost always old gray-haired guys, some of them with hair, some of them not, sorry. Um, and they, uh, they make decisions, and they could care less about the future of not only their community or their province or their country. They just care about what is very, very simple for them. They, have no, they, have, they can't really see ahead, and they become very entrenched in what they do and very myopic. If you find yourself to be a little bit disturbed, you are not alone. The correlation between Megan and Paul is that they both took initiatives in order to fight for something for the common good. It's extremely important that we are aware and we do become educated because decision making doesn't necessarily have to benefit the politician alone. They are essentially supposed to be looking out for the common good. And with things like public land and food security, the transportation utility cord is a great potential to use the land that we have in order to create something for the common good, to tackle issues like food security. We are a developed country, yet we experience so much inequality, which if we really take into consideration, these inequalities shouldn't be happening when we have the resources that we do. So I would like to dive a little bit deeper into how this ties into systematic racism in Canada and how minority groups are affected by this uh, type of decision making. It's, it's not only racism, it's sexism. Women are disproportionately impacted more negatively uh, because of food security. They're the ones that the nine out of 10 households are led by a, a woman. They're the ones that are struggling. So it's not only racist, it's sexist. And they don't care because they don't care. Their fridges are full. They have a roof over their head. I'll tell you right now, you get a a homeless committee together or a food secure committee together and nobody's got food in the fridge and nobody's got a home, you watch before they walk out of that room in 15 minutes, they're building homes. There's action. You get a room full of people that got fridge full of food and have a roof over their head. Oh, hey, look at the time. Uh, I've got to go and... I got to go to a wine and cheese, or I got to go get my hair done, or I got to go pick up the kids from hockey, or I got to watch. Throw up their hands I got to watch the me. Monday night NFL football or whatever they get. You know, it's uh, they. There's something else that's more important to them. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you, the people that it's important to, the people who are homeless and food insecure, and those single parents, and the people who are um, very challenged uh, f- from affordable housing perspective, they would make that decision immediately, and that's the problem. The problem is. The actual organizations and collaborations inside those collaborations and those collaboratives, they're the problem. Yeah. They're actually actively preventing what they say they want to see happen, and they're preventing it from happening. Mm-hmm. And this is the big paradox in activism and advocacy and the way our not-for-profit world is structured right now. And there's very few people like me that'll say it the way I see it. But we have to have these issues, and they're challenging to discuss sometimes, and people don't want to have those conversations. They start feeling awkward. You know who I feel awkward for? The person that's sleeping in the streets, the uh, parent that can't feed their children healthy Mm -hmm. food. 
So that is where we have to find the passion to keep moving forward and rock the boat. And maybe you don't walk out of there with a friend. Maybe that person doesn't think you're so cool to hang out with anymore. Maybe you don't get invited to the wine and cheese. Consider that success. Yeah, exactly. That's how we measure success. How many of these people unfriend you on Facebook? Mm -hmm. How many of these people don't want to follow you on TikTok anymore or Twitter? Yeah. Awesome. Great. No, exactly. And you kind of see their true colors. We're such a codependent species that we need to work together to solve these kind of issues. And if people, yeah, you know, like these are hard things to talk about. They're essentially a lot of injustice and a lot of unfairness to a lot of minority groups who don't really deserve it, right? The things that you said about the land and being uh, displaced is, again, something that it's not okay. So you need to, you know, that creates a lot of anger. It, cre- it creates a lot of passion. You're 100% right, Emily. You have to have passion in the room. And so what we do in our collaborations is we get rid of the passion because passionate people make us feel awkward. Mm -hmm. And so um, we get rid of those people. And that's the energy in the room. So let's get all those people out of there. And now you have people with very, very simple vested interests and agendas and uh, often are representing an organization with an agenda. And we get the passion out of the room and things fall apart pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And there's so many examples of that in the city of Calgary. So as soon as the passion is kicked out of the room because they don't play the game and they, they don't mind rocking the boat and they don't really care if they make the friends and rub elbows, that's the, when those people are gone, it starts to fall apart really quickly because there's no commonality between everybody else other than their own selfishness and their pursuit of greed. Mm-hmm. Collaboration plays such an important role in accomplishing the goals of these initiatives, such as the community fridge and urban agriculture, that it is great to see that the community comes together and supports people like Megan and Paul. So there was an awesome community fridge initiative on Center Street that was put up in August. Do you guys donate to things like the community fridge? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I'm a big fan of Alice's and Alice Lamb and the Calgary Community Fridge Project. It's amazing. Yeah, we've donated food. That's street level. That's street level food ac- food mm-hmm. access. So there's no questions asked. Your dignity is not attacked like the food bank does. Uh, you don't wait in a big long line like cattle. You can go there as often as you need it. Mm-hmm. And that's what needs to happen to the food access environment. And I've been fighting uh, CBC actually. I don't know if you know this, but a long five-year battle with CBC to change their food and funding drive into Christmas all they ever feature is a food bank. And the food bank operates on $40 million a year. It's the same model. It's getting tired. Do you eat canned food? No, sir. I try no. not to. <laughs> I, I've been asking people now for, since 2013, do you eat canned food? And I almost, everybody says, no, I don't. I try, I try to avoid it or I don't really eat canned food. Mm-hmm. But that's the food bank model. Yeah. So we have a program called Kick the Can. And we've asked CBC to, yeah, have the food bank. But include the 50 other food access organizations in the city that are doing really interesting, creative, innovative work around food access. Mm -hmm. And they will not budge. So I also encourage your listeners to um, not only contact the government, but to uh, get on social media and start talking to CBC about including other organizations like Alice's Calgary Community Fridge Program, Leftovers Foundation, Lord's Wand. Um, There's so many different groups out there that are working really hard and could use some funds. And by the way, when I did talk to um, the CBC, I said, we want to dissociate from this entire campaign. Grow Calgary is not part of this. Mm -hmm. Because they kept saying, oh, you just want Grow Calgary in there. I'm like, no, forget (laughs) it. Then it's not about that. 
you don't see that we need to change the system. Or as a public broadcaster, you keep entrenching the food bank model. Mm -hmm. And even CBC covers stories about entrenching the food bank model, about unhitching from the food bank model. That was a temporary project. So, you know, you get a hole in the roof, we all put down the bucket, the proverbial bucket, the proverbial hole in the roof. Mm -hmm. Um, But that bucket is supposed to be temporary. That bucket represents a food bank. And what they've done is now that bucket has a secretary and a parking stall and a business card and a fundraiser for the bucket when we're trying to fix the roof. And so, you know, I worked on the Calgary Poverty Reduction Initiative with the United Way. And it was really interesting to note that one of the things that came out of that entire process was universal basic income, which would get rid of the food bank and get rid of the United Way, uh, came from all the groups. We all said a UBI, a guaranteed income or a universal income. The United Way fought to ensure that that was not in the final report. So this is something that as you dig deeper and deeper with different issues, you find that it's not not as everything as, mm-hmm. as it appears. And it's really unfortunate for young people nowadays. Hey, Emily, thanks. This has been awesome to spend some time with you. Yeah, thank you so much, Paul. Do you want to just quickly say where your guys' farm currently is and uh, your hours of operation, I guess, if yeah, people want to visit? No, it's up by Balzac. Um, it's, we can see... We can see Lowe's, Cross Iron. Uh, we're online. We're, we're fit. Facebook, mm-hmm. Instagram, Twitter. Everybody's always welcome out to the farm. We're easy to get a hold of. Just search Grow Calgary and you'll find all kinds of fun stuff. Perfect. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you so much for your hard work. And it was a pleasure speaking with you today. There are so many things that we can benefit from in our local community. So I encourage you guys to stay curious and to stay informed and to keep supporting initiatives like these around the city. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you next month.